in a way that you cannot be refreshed any other way. Okay, are you ready for some Bible study this morning then? Are you ready to learn some things? Okay, let's, uh, let's begin. You know, getting into this subject as we're looking in chapter number eight, I, I want to just begin by reminding us of a statement that people use from time to time. People have been known to say that ignorance is bliss. Now, before we laugh too much about that, ignorance can be bliss when the knowledge that you receive brings undue stress into your life. You'd rather just not know than know some things that are just going to cause you stress. And maybe the people of the Bridge Life Group know that as well as any. I mean, you know, look, if you've got teenagers, there's some things maybe you would be better off not knowing. Okay, so ignorance can be bliss at times. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't have good information, you can't make good decisions. And that's just the truth. You can't make good decisions in investments, for example. You can't make the best decisions on what house to buy or what vehicle to buy if you're buying a used car or whatever. Uh, You certainly need good information before you make that big decision if you're going to get married, right? You definitely need good information if you're going to get saved. Uh, listen, Jesus Christ said in John 8, 32 that you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Until I knew the truth about the gospel, I couldn't possibly be saved. And once I knew the truth, well, then I could make the decision that has set me free for the rest of my whole life. And you know what? That actually is then our mission in life as believers in Jesus Christ, isn't it? To absolutely just reduce worldwide ignorance concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a way to to put our, our mission? We are to go and to proclaim the truth so that people all over this planet can be set free, amen? But you know that the devil doesn't want that to happen. You know that he will do anything to try and stop that. And I know that most of you in this room today would say that you've already experienced that freedom that is in Jesus Christ. And you need to also understand that your Christian life also requires continually learning more so that you can continue to make the right decisions and not live your life in bondage to sin. So going into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the theme of the entire book as we've been studying is this idea that there's power in community. God has designed us so that we would live together in community. And when we live our lives with a selfish, personal focus, well, we find that that attitude ultimately destroys our ability to have joy and purpose and fulfillment in our lives. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. And throughout the chapters, there's various topics that are covered. And we're coming out of a relational topic in chapter number 7, and we're entering into an entirely new topic for chapters 8 and 9 and 10. And the topic we will see referenced in these three chapters is the subject, obviously, we will introduce today, and that's the subject of idolatry. The subject of idolatry. Now, the dictionary definition of idolatry would be this, the worship of idols, images, or anything made by hands, or which is not God. But what we're going to see today is that an idol is anything that receives your devotion and service. Anything other than God, of course. So if you sacrifice to it, or if you sacrifice for it, or if you fear it, 
or if you reverence it, or if it takes such a priority in your life that there is no room for God, if God is replaced by it, then it's an idol. It's an idol. And certainly, clearly throughout the scriptures, true believers in Jesus Christ are to have no part in such things. So if you were to remember back in verse number one of chapter number seven, the Corinthians had actually asked Paul about certain subjects. They asked him about issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage he addresses in chapter seven. They also asked him about this. And this is the subject to which we will be looking at today. And so we are going to get a better understanding of idolatry. That is the title of the message, Understanding Idolatry. We're only looking at the first two verses. We're going to dig a little deeper today and try and really understand what this topic is all about. Please just follow along. First two verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Now this leads into an entire conversation that we will get to eventually, but I just want to stop here today and I want to clear off a space and make sure that we know what we need to know about things concerning idolatry. Let's just pray and then we'll get into our outline. Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation of your scripture and thank you for the fact that you have come into our hearts and to our lives to give us this proper understanding, to give us this proper knowledge, to allow us to be able to see things that maybe otherwise we wouldn't be able to see. And so my prayer today, Lord, is that we would understand from your word and then be able to make the right application as your Holy Spirit indeed helps us to navigate the terrain that we have in front of us. We love you and thank you for the privilege that it is to know you personally and to learn through your word. So we pray these things, asking and anticipating how you'll work in our lives, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing that we're going to look at is going to be a survey of what the Bible has to say. I'm just going to call it historical idolatry. It starts off with verse number one that has this sentence, concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So I thought it fair that we actually make sure that we actually know that we have knowledge. I mean, how much knowledge do we really have about this subject? When we think about the worship of idols or images or graven images or statues, and well, maybe we don't think we know so much about that subject. How much knowledge do we really have? Well, can I just say to you that this is such a big deal that it covers the first two of God's Big Ten Commandments. Now, I realize in Ohio, when you say Big Ten, your, your mind goes somewhere else. But God has His, and they're in the form of commandments, and they're in Exodus chapter 20. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, the very first of the Ten Commandments, verse number three, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we have heard this before from Troy, and we understand that when God says before me, that literally just means in my presence. That means anywhere. You, you shall not have any other gods anywhere at any time, at any place. Why? Because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And if you're not allowed to have anything anywhere before him in his presence, well, then you shouldn't have them anywhere at all. You could look at it this way. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, there should be nothing that comes between you and Jehovah God. There should be nothing that you go to first before you go to God. 
There should be nothing else that takes greater priority from God in your life. Now, historically speaking, when the Exodus was written, right, the children of Israel had just left Egypt. So the direct context would have been this polytheistic, multi-God perspective of the Egyptians of that day. Paul writes about idolatry in the New Testament, and he's in a different context. He's in a context of a Greek-Roman culture. And I think we all understand that in the Greek and Roman cultures, there was also polytheism, usually referred to as mythology, where there's so many gods over so many areas, and everybody was worshiping everything out of just complete fear that they might offend some other thing. And so this was kind of what was the terrain. This is kind of what was going on. That's the first commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 3. Go to verse number 4, the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That means that God does not tolerate any statues of any kind in a religious context. No saints, no gods, no people. Nothing is to be lifted up. Nothing is to be formed. Nothing is to be graven, engraved. Nothing is to be built or looked at or revered in a physical sense because God is a spirit. Not anything at all. No images of anything celestial. Nothing in the heaven above. Nothing of the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, No nature worship. Nothing in the earth beneath or nothing in the water underneath the earth. Nothing terrestrial, no animals, no fish, no trees, no rivers, no hills. Uh, God is out on pantheism, the idea that, that this God is just, the Spirit of God is just in everything. God is in the animals, he's in the trees, he's in the flowers, he's in the wind, he's, there's a lot of people that think that. And God says, no, no, I am one. He goes on in verse number five of Exodus 20 and he, and he says, don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. In other words, don't make them your master. Don't you become a slave to these things that are, well, at the end of the day, they're figments of your imagination or they're the works of your hands. Now the Bible gives us countless examples of idolatry and different ways that people have interacted. And I'm going to refer to some of them as we have our Bible study today. The greatest example right here that I can think of is in Daniel chapter 3 with the three Hebrew boys, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there in Babylon, you know the story where Nebuchadnezzar, decides, he's so full of himself, he, he's, he's the king of Babylon, and he builds this image that's 60 feet tall. It's made of solid gold. And he requires that everybody in the kingdom, everybody within the sound of his voice, whenever they decide that they need to fall down and they absolutely need to worship this idol, this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And so follow along in Daniel 3, verses 4 through 6. Then in herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So standing for the right thing for the Lord alone will have consequences. Jump down to verse number 12. 
It's reported, it says, there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They shall serve, or they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And that's true. They refuse to do that. Down a little farther, starting in verse 15. Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And we saw last week, the week before, this idea not being full of care. Not, we're not worried about answering you. We're not stressed out about answering you. It's not that they're not careful to give the accurate truth. No, they're not full of care and worry and stress and anxiety. Oh no, what am I going to say to the king? They're like, look, you want to know? We're going to tell you. That's the way it's going to be. We're not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So these young men, full of faith, no fear, had no guarantee that God would deliver them out of the fiery furnace. Now, we know the end of the story, and God did. But at this time, they said, our God is able to deliver us. And one way or another, he's delivering us out of your hand. But whether he delivers us out of your hand by stopping the fires from burning us, or whether he delivers us from your hand by, well, taking us out of this world, we're still not in your presence anymore. And whether our God chooses to deliver us or whether our God chooses not to deliver us, you know, that's his business. But either way, I'm not bowing down to your idol. I'm not bowing down to your idol. That's what God expects, y'all. Our complete and sole devotion and service to God alone. And God did deliver them in this particular case. So what we see, interestingly, is though... In this story and in many stories, you may consider not bowing down has a cost associated. But I want you to know that bowing down has a cost associated, and that's your first point. Letter A, idolatry has cost. It has cost. And the things that it can cost you may be various. These idolaters give up things that are precious to them in honor of these small g gods. Uh, you remember the story of Aaron and the children of Israel and when they made the golden calf? Moses is actually still up on Mount Sinai and he's about to come down with the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And there's this noise in the valley and Aaron, they, they just couldn't even wait for Moses to come back. And they got impatient. And they got all the children of Israel to take all their jewelry and their earrings and all the gold that they had and to, and to have this offering and then they melted it down. And in Exodus chapter 32, we have this verse number 24 where Aaron says one of the most ridiculous things you could ever read in the Bible. Whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me because Moses is like, what are you thinking? 
I cast it into the fire and poof, out came this calf. <laughs> okay, so they make this golden calf and they were going to make it their God. This is the God that has delivered us from Egypt. Really? Really? Uh, you know what? Making that calf cost them, did it not? I mean, these are people wandering in the desert, left in a rush out of Egypt. And whatever they had with them, well, they had to sacrifice it. They had to give it away because idolatry has cost. They had to sacrifice their wealth. Well, idolatry can cost not just your wealth. It might even cost your health. If you recall the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, this is in 1 Kings chapter number 18, and I want you to just follow along starting in verse number 25. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. There were actually 450 prophets of Baal, and only Elijah standing for Jehovah God. For ye are many, and call on the name of your gods. They're idolaters, see? But put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning until even, even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made, and it came to pass at noon that, you got to love Elijah, man. Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, louder. Hey, shout louder. For he's a God. He might be busy. (laughs) Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. Elijah's a dude. (laughs) And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets because that's what pagan idol worshipers do till the blood gushed out upon them. See, idolatry has a cost, doesn't it? The blood gushed out upon them, and it came to pass when midday was past. They prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. There was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And yeah, okay, so Elijah can mock them. But put yourself in his shoes for just a second. There were 450 of them. Uh, Just... Just look around this room. Let's just say that there's 450 of us in this room. There may be a little more than that. Um, And it's just you against all them. And they're all into this bail thing. And you're going to stand for what's right. And in the midst of their failures that you know, because you know the real God and you know that their whole thing is false, you're going to kind of stick it to them. You're going to kind of let them know, yeah, I mean, you know, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits, right? And so you're going to stick it. Well, at the same time, if you know anything about human nature, I mean, there's 450 dudes that might turn on you, right? I mean, these are grown men. But he doesn't seem to care. Why does he not seem to care? Well, he probably understands that one plus God is a majority. Well, God's majority by himself. But if you're with him, you're in the majority, right? They are false gods. They have nothing to offer, right? And so as that story goes, obviously God came down with the fire, consumed the sacrifice, and proved that he was the real God. But I think that Elijah understood this principle that we see in Psalm 115, 
Notice in verse number four, their idols, these idol worshipers, their idols, what are they? Well, they're silver and gold. Just the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. These things have the image of though they have life, they actually have no life. They can't speak, they can't see, they can't handle, they can't move, they can't do anything. They are the works of man's hands. There's nothing in them that gives them any power. So the conclusion of the psalmist in verse number 8, they that make them, well, they're like unto them without any life. So is everyone that trusteth in them. You put your trust in those kinds of things, well, there's no real spiritual life in you either. You probably just have an image as though you have life. You actually don't. You might think that not bowing down to the idols like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have consequences. Well, I'm going to tell you in letter number B in your notes, idolatry has consequences. Idolatry has consequences. God won't tolerate it. He will judge it. We go back to Exodus chapter 20, continuing in verse number 5. It says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. In fact, so much so that in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, he even says, my name is jealous. I'm so jealous, you can just call me jealous. <laughs> Exodus 20, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Notice of them that are confused. No, of them that hate me. Because according to God, idol worshipers are God-haters. They're God-haters. And that's the way that he describes it. Visiting the iniquity is just a really nice way of saying judging it. Judging it. Idolatry has consequences because God won't tolerate it and he absolutely will judge it. Now, historically, these pagan idolaters, they don't just build the idols. What many times they'll do is they'll actually build houses to their idols. They will build temples to their idols. And we have such a story in 1 Samuel chapter 5 where the Philistines had beaten the Israelites in a battle and they stole, they took as a spoil of war, the Ark of God. And they take the Ark of God and they place it in the house of, of their God called Dagon. You gotta pick up this story starting in 1 Samuel chapter five. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. Consider this house to be like a display room, a trophy case where they collected all of their gods. And they just decided, we'll add the God of Israel to our collection. And they set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, so they, put, they added the ark, they put it in there with Dagon, and then they shut the door, you know, they went to bed. They get up in the morning, and it says they rose early on the morrow, and behold, what happened? Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. 
And they said, oh, our God fell down. I think we need to help him up. So they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. Here, let's set you back up. I mean, let's, y'all, if y'all need to help your God out, you might want to go shopping again. Just some, just some thoughts. And so they set him in his place again and they go about their day and then they get to the next day. When they arose again, when they rose early on the morrow, again, right, morning, Behold, again, right, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Only this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold and only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Because even though that statue has no life, it's no threat to Jehovah, he says, I will not tolerate any other gods before me and they will be thrown down now the real idolaters right is not the stone the real idolaters are the men who built it and so if we took the time and boy I considered taking the time today we're just going to leave it to you to go home and read okay first Samuel chapter 5 that story continues and there is a plague that comes over the Philistines Anybody remember what that plague is? The Bible word is they were smitten with emeralds. Now, emeralds sounds oddly like the word that it really is that we use today. It starts with an H. Okay? And so the, the people who were these Dagon idol worshipers were literally smitten with what we would call hemorrhoidal tumors. Uh, so severely, and it doesn't exactly explain why or how, and it's one of those stories in the Bible where you think, what in the world is going on? And I don't know if you've ever yourself or known others who have experienced that sort of pain, but they tell me, let me just say it that way, (laughs) that it's uh, near impossible to find a comfortable position for your body when you are plagued with that particular thing. In fact, do you want to know the only comfortable way that you can find your your ability to rest? It's on your face. It's laying on your belly. It's the only possible way. And don't you know the God of Israel who won't tolerate the idolatry, who threw the stone statue down until it was broken, and then had smitten these people with this particular thing, it was just to show everybody, before me, you all end up on your face. That's how it works. He won't tolerate it. There are consequences. Now, that particular story of Dagon and the house of Dagon has a lot of wonderful applications that we could make in our lives. And and I feel like it would be a mistake if I didn't give you at least one for your life today. And the idea would be this. All of our lives before we know Jesus Christ as our Savior is nothing but a house of idols. Uh, Our life is just full of our own selfish, personal, small g gods. But when Jesus Christ comes in to live, all the others have to fall down. Old things are passed away, the Bible says. All things are become new. Now that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in the house, y'all, 
There's no more room for Dagon or any of the others. They have to fall before Jesus Christ. So in the story of the Old Testament Jews wandering through the wilderness and eventually making it into the promised land, when they enter the promised land, there's that other thing in the Bible that maybe you've never fully understood. God said, when you go into the land, kill them all. Take no prisoners. Wipe them all out. Man, woman, child, beast, start fresh. This land is mine. This land is yours. It's not theirs. They have no business being here. Wipe them all out. Where is the God of love? Well, they're all God-hating, pagan, idol worshipers. And God knew that if they intermingled with those people, that they would go down that path. Start fresh. Start over. Wipe them out. Idolatry has consequences. This is the issue. This is what he was worried about. That the Israelites would be so consumed and led by their flesh and not the spirit. So that kind of leads us into our next point, which is that idolatry has carnality. It has carnality. And specifically, the way I want you to understand that today is, is, is the term carnal knowledge refers to adultery. And when your relationship to God is likened unto that of a marriage, like Israel was with God the Father, like the church is with Jesus Christ, and when your relationship with God is likened unto a marriage and you choose to go off and worship other gods, that's spiritual adultery. That's spiritual adultery. Because you're going after other loves. That's what Israel did. And that's why God the Father said, I'm giving you a bill of divorcement. So we have the picture, and this has been mentioned before, of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. And he's told to marry a woman named Gomer, and she's a prostitute. And, well, with a name like Gomer, she might not have had a lot of other options. I don't know. But he told her to do that as an example of what Israel was doing with God the Father, spiritually speaking. And in a reading of the book of Hosea, you see this theme come up again and again. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 15. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend. And come ye not unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Bethaven, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. So Israel is backslidden. Israel has gone backwards in their walk with the Lord. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom spiritually, of course, continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. I mean, just think about it, guys. What would you do? What would you think? What would you think of doing if your bride stepped out on you over and over and over again? How would that make you feel? Well, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number 2 where he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you, church, to one husband, 
that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, I'm sure that in this crowd, none of you would think of stepping out on your marriage. But would we ever step out on the Lord Jesus Christ? Would Jesus ever rightly say to any of us, like he rightly said to the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2, that you have left your first love? They left it. Their first love was Jesus Christ, but things happened and they got confused and they ended up leaving that one and finding new loves. Well, that's spiritual adultery. That's really idolatry. That's what it is. So we see how idolatry was played out in the pages of Scripture, but really what does that have to do with me today? Well, that's our second main point, and we'll call it modern idolatry modern idolatry and verse number two says and if any man think that he knoweth anything he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know that's Paul's way of saying we may not actually know as much as we think we know and I would like to challenge us today to consider the fact that while we may have a fair biblical understanding of ancient peoples carving rocks and chiseling statues and painting pictures and and having houses of God collections, and we may understand the, the historical nature of, of very pagan people doing those kinds of things. Do we really know all that we need to know about maybe what God would want to say to us today? I mean, have things really changed that much in the nature of man? I mean, we don't often think of ourselves in that light, but is it possible that we may be idolaters today? I mean, oh, of course, we would never bow down to a golden calf or a statue, but would we bow down to our bank accounts of gold? Uh, would we bow down to a towering, looming social peer pressure? You know, I think if we're going to really understand the modern application of idolatry, we need to begin by looking at the source of idolatry. The source of idolatry. Isaiah chapter 14, verse number 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer desired worship. And because of that, it caused his fall. And that's the very next verse, 15, which says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So now Lucifer becomes the character that we know as Satan, right? After his fall, he's referred to no longer as Lucifer, but as Satan. And in the story, while he's tempting Jesus Christ in the wilderness, after Jesus has 40 days of fasting, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 9, and saith unto him, Satan says unto Jesus, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. 
Don't kid yourself, friends. Satan still desires worship. 2 Corinthians 4 says that he is the God of this world. Ephesians 2 tells us that he has set this world on a course that he controls. That means that if we fall down and worship anything in this world system, we ultimately worship the author of that system, which is Satan himself. Sound extreme to you? Sound like I'm kind of pushing it too far? Well, I want you to consider this. Next point, the subtlety of idolatry. Unsaved man, man in his natural state, is fallen, sinful, with a sin nature. And Jesus Christ says in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that we are all of our father, the devil, spiritually speaking. Jesus speaking to unsaved Pharisees. So religious or otherwise, it doesn't matter. Until the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of your life and God the Father is your spiritual heavenly father, spiritually speaking, you are in the spiritual family of the devil. All lost men find themselves in this case. An unsaved man is controlled by his flesh. It's the only thing available to be able to control him until the Holy Spirit takes up residence and gives you the ability to follow his leading. Therefore, we see that idolatry is a work of the flesh. And Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 give us a list of things that are the works of the flesh. And among them, we find idolatry. We find idolatry. So idolatry is a work of the flesh. Lost man has no choice but to be controlled by his flesh. He is of his father, spiritually speaking, who is the devil. So I want you to think about it this way. Since lost man is only led by his flesh, and since idolatry is a work of the flesh, and since he lives in a world set on course by the devil, there is just something about man that has a desire to worship or adore something greater than himself. Have you not noticed that? Yet while at the same time not surrendering, to the only one that is worthy to be worshipped. Just consider it. There are, all over Europe, Catholic basilicas, and they not only have statues and paintings, but they have relics of bones of supposed saints and they're locked in boxes, and people travel from all over the world to visit these places, to bow down, just to see these bones of John the Baptist or Peter or whoever they think or say that they might be. There's religions all over the world, not just the Catholics with the Pope, who exalt themselves to the position of deity, where all the heads of state of the entire world come and bow before him, Hindu priests, people all over this planet where they bow down to others in a religious context as though they are greater. Man is an incorrigible idolater. You may not believe what I'm about to tell you, but in 1977, in New Mexico, there's a Hispanic woman who is frying handmade corn tortillas. And she looks away for a while, and one of the corn tortillas 
begins to smell. It burned a little too much, and she pulls it off the fire. And as she looked at the burn marks on the tortilla, this is actually a true story, she noticed that it happened to look like the face of Jesus and was so excited the local news came and did a big report on it and you know what they did with that Jesus of the tortilla? (laughs) They built a shrine to it. And people drove from all, (laughs) laugh, They, they drove from all over and they came to see tortilla Jesus. This is in my lifetime. This is the 1970s. Now, it's no longer there. It was located, this should be no surprise to some of you, about two hours south of Roswell, New Mexico, (laughs) where all the fun stuff happens. Listen, it doesn't have to be that crazy. You can laugh because you're thinking... You would never, ever partake in such foolishness. But you know what? We have a lot of contemporary hero worship that goes on, don't we? Listen, I I could have spent a long time and flashed photos up on the screen. I, I collected a bunch of them and just decided not to. Sports icons, teams, pop culture, movies, music, Let's face it, man's an idolater. Uh, I used to live in a town in North Alabama, and there was a young lady that was in our church, a sweet gal, loved the Lord, and I'm not kidding you that we had a young adult fellowship. It was at her place, and a bunch of people were there, and this girl had a shrine to Bear Bryant. (laughs) Who's Bear Bryant? Okay, ask somebody who watches football. Okay, so (laughs) the iconic coach of the Alabama football team, and and literally there was a table. There was photos. There was trophies. There were candles. There was a little doily. (laughs) I mean, there was the whole deal. And, uh, you know, and I was like, wow, shrine to Bear Bryant. And, you know, they just laugh it off. Oh, yeah, you know, it's Alabama. I was like, oh, okay. Good luck with that, (laughs) you know. I'm moving. <laughs> um, this is not just this is not just the house of Dagon and Aaron and the golden calf, y'all. Man is man. I'm going to wrap this up. There's a last point. You got a bunch of blanks left. We'll go through it really quickly. Listen, I want you to see the sorts of idolatry. You think I'm stretching this too far? See the different sorts of idolatry that appear in the Word of God. I want you to notice. Different places. These are places in the Bible where the word idolatry appears. Colossians 3.5 talks about riches. Riches. Colossians 3.5 where it says, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness, materialism, greed, seeking things is idolatry. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money. We just wiped out the vast majority of the American public. You cannot do it. People will really pray about whether or not they want to be involved in church, but if it affects my bank account, brother, I am there. Covetousness is idolatry. Riches 
can be that thing. Uh, next category, rebellion. 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is the story of King Saul and his rebellion and not fully obeying the word of God. And it says that rebellion, right, is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as idolatry. Refusing to listen to God and his word. God told you to do something. It's the sin of omission. God told you specifically what to do. And he, would, he did it partially. He did a pretty good job. He didn't do it completely. Wipe out all the Amalekites. Kill them all. Don't save any. Lord, I just saved the best as an offering to you. No, I said, obey me. Obey is better than sacrifice. So this rebellion, it's like witchcraft. Stubbornness is idolatry. God ever told you to do something and you just said, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. Well, you're an idolater. Uh, how about religion? Number three, Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens. He's up on Mars Hill, and he sees these statues to all these various and different gods, and he says in verse 16 of Acts 17, a city given to idolatry. And he goes down into verse 22, and he says, I see that you are far too superstitious. And people that are just consumed with religion and all of the pomp and circumstance that goes with religion and superstition and fear and guilt and shame. Thank God we don't have to have a religion because we have a relationship with God. It's a personal living relationship with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive. You don't need a religion. We don't need the, the relics. We don't need the circumstance. We don't need the superstition. That is idolatry. Multiple gods, multiple authorities, no peace, no confidence. God delivered you from all of that. Well, if we haven't wiped out the crowd yet, I saved the best one for last. Recreation. 1 Peter chapter, three, chapter 4, excuse me, and verse number 3. Let's look at it. For the time past for life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. Notice, what was that? When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So all of this lifestyle about just having fun. What's wrong with having fun? Nothing. Is it your idol? Is it the focus of everything you do? Is it, is it what you sacrifice for? Is it what you live and, and bow down to the idol of your golden bank account so that you can do more of? Does it consume all of your time? Is it a God before God that you go to first? Is it something that consumes your time and your schedule and your resources? Is it something that so, and by the way, in North America, man, this is a huge danger. These are things that in of themselves are not necessarily sin, but you put them between you and God and uh-oh, as Scooby-Doo says, rut-row. <laughs> and so it could be anything, actually, that could be good can become your idol. It could be your family. It could be your job. It could be your education. It could be your status. It could be your free time. It could be sin. Some of these lascivious banquetings are sinful. But really, it's just anything that hinders your free and complete devotion to God alone. That's what it is. Because idolatry is not just ancient pagans building statues and totem poles and worshiping rocks and the sun. 
God's trying to tell you something today. Now, we all have knowledge. Concerning things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. But if any man thinks he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Jesus said, can I remind you, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. So knowing this truth can help you rightly apply the decisions that are in your life. Oh, and all the things that will be discussed in the next three chapters when we get to doing that as well. I have one question for your thought and we end with this. Is there a chance that you are guilty of idolatrous behavior? And if that be the case, what are we to do about it? Well, the Bible's very clear. We're to flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10. We're to flee from idolatry. That means you should repent of it. If you find yourself guilty before the Lord, if the finger of God has touched your heart and has said, yeah, this thing for you has gotten in the way of you serving me and you know exactly what it is and how it is. I don't need to know. No one else needs to know. You and God know. He's made it clear to you today. Now is the time for you to respond. Now is the time for you to turn from that thing, give it back to God, give it away, be done with it, put it away, and just decide today is the day I'm going forward with no other gods before him. This is a ridiculously practical application for all of us where we live today. Let's consider these things. We'll pray together.